When you give someone an antibiotic, whether necessary or unnecessary, your gut microbiome, we've done studies to show it's disrupted for up to a year. Now think about that, one full year. But you know, many patients need antibiotics, so you just have to accept that. Welcome to The Better Podcast, where we attempt to rewrite the future of our health. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Farrell, the founder and CEO of Better Health. And with me today is news anchor, television personality, a mom of three, and a self-described hypochondriac, Aaron O'Hearn. I am incredibly excited about having our guest, Dr. Goff on. She's an infectious disease specialist. She's been named by the World Health Organization to be one of the 25 global advocate experts who are helping healthcare professionals and leaders and lower and middle income countries implement an antimicrobial stewardship. She's a TED Talk speaker, uh, a mentor. She's actually a photographer. And Erin, you guys are going to bond. Wait till I tell you the, the thing, triathlete. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, I can't wait. So she doesn't just talk the talk. She runs the walk and bikes the walk. So this is really important to us, Erin. As you know, I'm a gut health nerd and antibiotics and you know, I've been talking about this for many, many years. We had Dr. Wishmeyer on about COVID-19 and the use of probiotics to help people prevent going into ventilation mode and even mortality just by using probiotics in the ICU with people like SARS. That was an episode that people absolutely love. And we talk about this. We touch on this topic, right? We always say things like the overuse of antibiotics. That's what our, when we say, that's what's led to this, but we've never had someone to really dial in on that. I had the fortunate ability to actually listen to her uh, TED talk. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Goff. Thank you so much for having me. I really look forward to the discussion we're going to have. As I can see, the two of you are quite lively, not the typical people I interact with every day in the hospital setting. So I welcome this. Up. I'm glad you, you considered me lively, which means alive, which means yes. I'm not dying, yeah. which yeah. I usually think I am. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And the frame of this is there is an epidemic of overuse of antibiotics and you have made it your life's mission to educate and help people be a good steward. And, and the definition of being a good steward would be an example of someone who knows that our ocean is important to us and they have some responsibility in, in making sure that ocean, maybe it's commercial fishermen not throwing their nets in the line or people drinking, not using straws. Stewardship means we have something that can help people, but we also need to conserve it and use it in the right fashion. When you talk about being an anti- You could say antibiotic steward because yeah. the public doesn't know what antimicrobial even yeah. means, so and we're not using it anymore. Yeah. yeah, so describe to us a second what it means, but first, what was the, what was the, the tipping point? What was like, oh my God, this is an epiphany that changed, you know, changed your life and why you needed to make this your mission. Sure. So when I started my career, my biggest challenge as an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist was trying to keep up with the multitude of antibiotics being FDA approved every year. That was the challenge. There were you know, there's many different classes of antibiotics, and one is considered cephalosporins. And there was literally a cephalosporin a month almost trying to keep up with them and how to differentiate them. You know, do we need to use these in our patients? That was the biggest challenge. But then over time, and really I would say in the 90s, we started seeing escalating rates of antibiotic resistant infections. And Pharmaceutical companies stopped manufacturing and developing and creating clinical research in antibiotic drug discovery because it's not profitable. They're the dumbest drug to invest in because if you think of it, the more we use an antibiotic, the less effective it becomes. So if you're a business, is that the product you want to be developing? And the answer is no, it's not profitable. So they're smart companies. They stopped developing and doing research in infectious diseases. And so our pipeline for antibiotics got less and less as antibiotic resistance started going up and up. So when the two collide, you are in a crisis. And the crisis is I see patients where they have an infection 
that is untreatable. I have nothing in my toolkit to treat them with. It's fully antibiotic resistant. And a lot of those patients die. So I work in an academic medical center and we have a lot of oncology patients and there's nothing more. Kind of the aha moment was when you have a patient who had a successful bone marrow transplant. They're one month recuperating. They beat cancer. The family is so happy. They're so blessed. And then they acquire an antibiotic resistant infection during their recovery when their immune system is really low. And that patient dies. They did not die from their cancer. They died of an antibiotic resistant infection acquired while they were recovering. And that to me was when I said, this is a crisis because this is going to happen more and more. And now it's every day. So that is where really in the beginning of 2000, it was just clearly an identified healthcare global problem and really became very passionate about what I call antibiotic stewardship. And the word stewardship just means overseeing something worth protecting. And that something is an antibiotic. And in that vein, when you started, you know, thinking about this, to use the term, did you have come up against resistance? Absolutely. Because when you start looking at how are we using antibiotics in my own hospital, you know, you saw a lot of things that were just not appropriate. And the study that was quoted in USA Today, which led to this invitation, you know, that's a brand new study done by our CDC in over 190 hospitals. And it showed 50% of the antibiotics in 2015 are not prescribed appropriately. They're either not necessary, they're the wrong dose or the wrong duration. That is pathetic. And so imagine back in 2000, when you were starting and you could identify all these opportunities of need for improvement. You know, why are you starting this patient on an antibiotic? And the answer I would routinely get, well, just in case they're infected, which actually led to the title of my TED talk. So I heard that over and over again. And I think the challenge, and it remains the challenge today until you see the consequence of your prescribing, that there is a negative impact on the patient. You will never change what you're doing because your perception is it's helping the patient. And that's what antibiotics are. They're a feel-good product. People think they make them feel better. So we have consumers that you know pressure doctors to give them antibiotics because I don't have time to be sick. I have to go to work. That's one component of it. And then you have physicians that have been prescribing them and passing them out like candy bars, that's what I say, for decades and not really realizing the consequence of that. And there's a lot of consequences that we can talk about. So changing that behavior is not something that happens overnight, something that you've been doing for over a decade and you perceive it to be appropriate. You're not going to just turn that off in a day. So you know, changing behavior takes time and there's actually a science behind it and it's difficult, but that's what an antibiotic steward does. Dr. Grubb, the reason I loved your TED talk so much and, and obviously your approach to this whole topic is because as a society right now and as a culture, we're either anti or for, like anti or pro. So everything is one extreme or the other. And I've heard a lot of people including some doctors, but mostly people in the healthcare industry or in the health industry say antibiotics are no good. You shouldn't take antibiotics. And what was so fascinating about your approach is that you were not saying that antibiotics are bad. In fact, they can be life-saving, but when they're abused or used in the wrong way, that's when there's a problem. And again, like as a society, we're all or nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you're not advocating not to use antibiotics. You're just asking people and doctors and patients to use them in the appropriate way. Absolutely. I mean, they are absolutely life saving miracle drugs. I mean, we can go through treatment of pneumonia and it was a fatal disease decades ago. And it's 100 percent curable now in some countries that still have effective antibiotics. So I've worked on both sides of the story. And when you try to change or influence people's behavior, the first step is you have to listen to why do you do what you do? 
And so if you just preach at people, you should not use these antibiotics. This is not right. They tune you out immediately. And, you know, we see that in society with political differences. You know, if you don't agree with me, I don't want to talk to you. And you just yell at each other and nothing is accomplished that way. So if you really want to create change, you have to first be able to listen to each other and have a conversation or you, you will never succeed. And so I've worked a lot in my career with surgeons because they do prescribe about 50% of the antibiotics in a hospital, rightfully so. You cannot do a surgery without an antibiotic given before the surgeon makes that first incision. It's called prophylaxis. You, know, you can be a young woman and if you need a C-section and do not have an antibiotic, there is a very high chance you'll die postoperatively. So antibiotics are part of a surgeon's necessary toolkit to do surgery. You need an antibiotic, you need skilled surgical hands, and you need tools to do the incision and the operation. And without one of those, it'll be a poor outcome for the patient. So surgeons need to use antibiotics, but the challenge comes in, do they use the right antibiotic? And do they use them for the right length of time? And are they using them postoperatively for actual infections or what I call just in case? You know, when you have a patient that had a surgical procedure postoperatively, they can have a temperature and it doesn't always mean they're infected. But when someone has a fever and the kind of knee-jerk reaction is, well, I need to make that go away, so let me give him an antibiotic because maybe it's an infection. And as a surgeon, I've learned, you know, tell me why you're prescribing these for 14 days. I don't even know what it is you're treating because you didn't obtain any cultures to identify if the patient's infected. I, I don't know what you're doing, so you explain it to me. And that is where the dialogue starts. And then when they explain it, you know, well, you're right, I, I really didn't get any cultures, but I'm concerned they might be infected. And so just in case, that's why I prescribed it. And I go, okay, but now let's look at, could you actually be harming the patient? And then I explain the harm that is done every day you keep a patient on unnecessary antibiotics. And the one that resonates most with surgeons is the development of a very potentially lethal form of diarrhea called C. diff, Clostridium difficile. And that, when it escalates, becomes a surgical medical emergency. So C. diff, when it develops into a fulminate case, it literally can have the patient's colon explode. So you can only imagine what harm occurs to your body if that happens and you get what's called a syndrome called sepsis and you can die. And surgeons are the only ones who can correct that problem. It's a surgical emergency. So they very much understand that. So when I explain to them, every day you keep a patient on an antibiotic, whether it's necessary or unnecessary, their risk of C. diff escalates and you create a microbiome dysbiosis and you disrupt that and they understand that. So when I provide factual data, because working at a university hospital, we keep track of every adverse event from an antibiotic. So C. diff is publicly reported by hospitals in the United States. And that's a data, that's a number I can obtain and actually show the surgeon, well, your number of patients, this is how many have had this occur. And, you know, facts don't lie. So when you can have a reasonable conversation that's evidence-based to say, you know, there's actually harm occurring from this. So let's have a discussion. How can we change this? And so that is my approach, not just telling them what you're doing is wrong and we're going to change it. No one wants to hear that conversation. So it's interesting. So Dr. Wishmeyer, who we had on from Duke, has said that C. diff cases just keep climbing. He has an interesting story because he had gut health issues when he was 17. And so, you know, he really became part of who he is. And to that end, I'm just curious. So why don't they just have a videotape of you of your TED Talk at every medical university right now to stop the bleeding, right? I know we have to get out to those that are not uh, educated. Is that happening? Do you, do you see in the universities they're now speaking about this and, and talking about it? Because 
and some of the folks that I have, my, some of my medical doctor friends that are younger, they do kind of know this already. They know not to do this, but do you see that as this part of the, the new medical curriculum to teach to teach new doctors coming out about this? It is. So I find it very interesting when I talk to physicians. And I remember when we started our antibiotic stewardship program formally in the early 2000s, and you would say, oh, I'm doing antibiotic stewardship. They're like, "Ah, what is that? I've never heard of it. And that's still true today. Now, in 2017, all U.S. hospitals are required now to have antibiotic stewardship programs. But that doesn't mean they're all effective programs. You know, you can kind of game the system. And if you have a committee that meets for an hour a month, you can say you have a stewardship program. You know, to me, that's a crime. You were only doing this to assure responsible use of antibiotics and that we don't harm patients. And so you have to engage everybody in the discussion and there are necessary programs. And, you know, we have to teach this at a early stage. So I actually teach it to children. My daughter is a grade school teacher. So during antibiotic awareness week, I go to the sixth graders and teach them about responsible use of antibiotics. I believe you have to start that young. So in medical school, pharmacy school, nursing school, everybody has said we need to do this, but I can absolutely guarantee you it is not being taught in every U.S. medical school, pharmacy school, or nursing school, which is wrong. So it'll eventually occur, but the younger ones do seem to have a little bit more appreciation for it. But, you know, we have a lot of healthcare providers that that aren't young. And unfortunately, they're the most senior people in the hospital setting who kind of dictate what is done and not done. So I really, since I am not 20, I am closer to the age of those more senior people. And that is what I do. I sit and talk with them because I've been in the field for a long time. So I know what it used to be like. I know how they think. And that's who I try to connect with because it's got to start at the top and move down. So I do a lot of that. Look, I know you've done it this way for 30 years, but give me a chance to explain to you why we need to change. We're doing this for our children's children. So I ask them, are you a grandparent? And they're like, yeah. And I go, so what happens if your child gets otitis media and it's a bacterial infection in your grandchild and there are no effective antibiotics orally to give your grandchild and they have to be hospitalized now for that infection and they acquire a healthcare, so a hospital acquired infection and now have to be on IV therapy and heaven forbid, there are no effective antibiotics and your child just has the consequence of now deafness. And you know what? That resonates. You have to give stories that are real and people can relate to. So if you don't want to change your behavior, I try to go, well, what would? And any grandparent, as I'm a brand new grandparent of a nine-day-old baby, you see that change occur. And I watched it in a CEO of a pharma company. I'm not going to name which one, but they fund a lot of our research in infectious diseases, the few that are still out there that discover new antibiotics. Really didn't fund a lot. And I, I would not say, in my opinion, was real committed to this area until his grandson ended up in a neonatal intensive care unit with a drug-resistant infection and was close to dying. Fortunately, he survived. But I watched that CEO turn on a dime and is the biggest advocate of antibiotic stewardship. So it's those personal stories. You know, it may not be you personally, but it's your grandparents, your parents, your child that will be impacted by antibiotic resistance. And that's when people realize this is a societal problem. It's not just about controlling antibiotic prescribing, but it's got to start somewhere. So, you know, starting in the hospital setting, changing that behavior of prescribing more responsibly is where I started. This is tough for the patients out there, but people that listen to this, and that's why we actually do this podcast is because if the stewardship is also for the patient to go in there and tell the doctor, no, I don't want to take that. You know, you said earlier that they pressured the doctor. Well, they're pressured because they've been indoctrinated 
by the doctors and to get antibiotics, right? Now we're asking, no, 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 sorry. If someone questions anything now, they'll say, well, you're a quack and just, do you have a medical degree? Do you work at CDC? And that's what does make people a hopper contract because they say, how can I believe what's coming out of these studies, especially if they are being funded by pharma? Where are the stakeholders? So it does lead the person on the road like, oh, who do I listen to? How do I know the information I'm getting? And in this scenario, we're talking about critical use case of an antibiotic. To the other side of that is, okay, you're not sure as a you know, person listening to this that I can go and convince my doctor that I shouldn't have this or shouldn't have this. And is it affecting me? Yeah, because it's not just the use of antibiotics, right? This is in our food system. This is what they gave to animals, right? And that it was for growing them. My point is saying is now that to bring it back to the kind of the, the microbiome itself and the preventative measure, making people aware that, hey, you know, doctors should not be prescribing this. So in case I need it in a critical, it works for everybody. But secondly, what are the other consequences of not having good gut health? I, I do a live call and last night, people, tons of anxiety, tons of depression. And I go back and say, well, can you think about when you were younger? Yeah, I was actually always had ear infections. I always had strep. Uh, I was a C-section, right? Now these things that used to be quackery are now like, hey, actually, once your microbiome is off, if you don't replenish it, you are more predisposed. Can you weigh in on, on what you think of the kind of the conceptual process of keep your gut healthy so that you are, have less critical need for these things? And if you do, maybe they'll work better. Is that even a, a thing you, you promote? It is. Talk about? Yeah. So you touched upon some really great points. I'm working now with a uh, neonatologist who has done this research on terms of the impact of giving a neonate an antibiotic. Oh my gosh, in the last five years, we've learned if you were exposed to antibiotics early on, and many neonates, when they're born, if your child spikes the temperature, it forces the doctor to do this infectious disease workup for sepsis, which can be life-threatening in a neonate. So they have to give them antibiotics so they can prove they don't have a bacterial infection. But what happens is a lot of times they give the cultures that tell you if they're infected with a bacterial organism or not will come back generally in two to three days. But the neonatologist will often extend the antibiotics unnecessarily just for fear of maybe I would be missing something. So the person I'm working with has done many studies to show you can shorten that course once you have the definitive diagnosis and stop them. Because what we've never known for years in the neonate, was there a consequence to the child for giving longer therapy? And the answer now is absolutely yes. You create a dysbiosis. There's been linkage to obesity in children exposed to antibiotics early in life development of asthma. There is so much we are learning about the impact of giving antibiotics early on. Again, you know, it's a balance. When you have a baby that spikes the temperature, they need antibiotics. And that's a behavior change that currently is not standard of care. So that's an area that I'm working on with my neonatology experts and trying to change the behavior. And to just kind of circle back about pressuring the doctors to prescribe antibiotics. In the hospital setting, I've never had a patient pressure us for an antibiotic. They're in the hospital because they're really sick and many of the antibiotics are justified and we need to give it to them. They're life-saving. Where we have opportunities for improvement is in the duration of antibiotics. We've learned shorter now does equal better, less side effects, less dysbiosis, so we know shorter courses and many infections are equally treated or equal successful outcomes if we give five days instead of 10 days, which was old school. But I used to believe early on when I started doing antibiotic stewardship, if I could just get the antibiotic use right in my hospital, I've got the problem solved. And you began to learn. Remember, I work at a very large, diverse university I get this email one day about joining the One Health Antibiotic Stewardship Program. And I'm like, what is that? So this was several years ago. 
And it was from one of our veterinary professors. And it's like, what is he asking me to be part of this for? And I learned, I go to this meeting with veterinary medicine, food and agriculture experts, environmental experts, myself representing human medicine. And we sit at this table and one health antibiotic stewardship is the intersection of human antibiotic use, animal antibiotic use, and environmental antibiotic use. And my eyes were wide open. We spray our apple orchards with an antibiotic that we use in humans. We give our animals a ton of antibiotics because it fattens them quick so they go to slaughter faster. I mean, it was just like an, an explosion of new data. And now I'm fully invested in that. So you're absolutely right that there is an animal to human transmission of antibiotic resistance, and there's a connection between all of this. So as a, a provider of healthcare, I know how to become an antibiotic steward, but what I teach everyone is we all need to be an antibiotic steward. So you can support restaurants that serve antibiotic-free chicken and antibiotic-free meat. And I tell them, you have a plethora of choices. So when you go in, you ask, hey, could you just ask the chef if you serve antibiotic-free meat? And the waiter might look at you like, well, I don't know. And then I educate them in two seconds. I go, you know, it's important to me and it really should be important to you. Let me just tell you why. And, you know, I have a lot of restaurants to pick from. So just let the chef know, I think it's important. And now we have a plethora of restaurant chains like Panera, Chipotle, that serve antibiotic-free chickens. So consumers do have power in this. And you have a voice because you can choose to spend your money where you want to spend it. So that's what I teach people is it's not just, you know, shaming doctors in a hospital for prescribing too many antibiotics or shaming doctors in the outpatient setting that are pressured by patients to prescribe antibiotics. And in defense of the physicians, when you're in private practice and you have patients coming to you and you don't give them what they want, guess what they do? They go on social media and go, don't waste your money going here. They rate you with one star on Yelp and you can't ever erase those. So it's a, it's a balance and you have to figure out how to balance that. But we know the CDC already told us 30% of antibiotics in the outpatient setting are unnecessary. Wow. You actually touched on a story that was pretty personal to me. I am a mom of three, but my firstborn, when she was five weeks old, spiked a fever. So she went and got the workup done. And unfortunately, they missed the spinal tap three times. And she had oh. hematoma in her. You remember this, yeah. doctor. She had hematoma in her, in her back. And they automatically put her on the antibiotics. And then what should have been like a 48-hour ordeal turned into a two-week ordeal with going in and testing for all sorts of viruses yeah. and really not being able to identify what it was. And we had a whole infectious disease team come in. And while they said that the white blood cell count wasn't as high up to indicate meningitis, it was, it was elevated. And their conclusion was the reason it may have not been elevated to the point of indicating meningitis was because she had already started the antibiotics. So now you're going to have to stay here because we can't find a virus, essentially, that's causing the fever. So she was on antibiotics for 14 days, at five, so from five to seven weeks. And of course, now you're telling me all the repercussions and she's almost 12 now and I'm sick to my stomach. But I mean, she's a perfectly healthy child. She's smart and she's, you know, fortunately, she's not obese. I mean, we have a pretty healthy diet in our house. But my question is, so they thought that I was in, I was in a really precarious situation, right? And I, I do think this is important to tell all new parents about because especially with everything going around, babies do spike fevers and it is important to get them to the hospital. What, in your opinion, should the parent be advocating for not to start the antibiotic until there is a clear diagnosis? In this case, is the just-in-case mm -hmm you know, no, method, no, the way yeah. to go. I mean, it's easy. It's a little bit easier when you're dealing with yourself, but when you're dealing with a 
fragile newborn right. and you're a new parent and you know, your world's turned upside down because they're telling you she could have a life-threatening illness. Right. It's a really hard yep. situation. So I very much relate to your story because my son at day five of life, I had this nice, healthy baby that I was home with, spiked a temp. I went through the exact same thing you did. So I have my own personal experience with being on the other side of the stethoscope is what I say. Now I'm the parent in the ICU unit and I knew exactly what was going to happen. And because I have um, a lot of knowledge of the side effects of the antibiotics my son was going to be on, I was in absolute panic mode and it was just a very frightening scenario. But I'm glad your daughter and my son are both healthy and but that spinal tap and the antibiotics, let me address that. Nope. In a neonate, a newborn child, the first two months, if you spike a temp, your child is getting what we call a, a rule out sepsis, rule out meningitis workup. It's the spinal tap and antibiotics. So the challenge, why do we give antibiotics and wait? Because we're trying to make that definitive microbiology diagnosis of what bacteria is causing this or what virus is causing this. So back when my son was in the ICU, the microbiology component to answer that question for a doctor is not real good. And it takes, you know, there, there's only a couple viruses that can be identified, but we know there's hundreds of viruses yeah. in the world. And actually there are next to zero antiviral medicines to give, but in terms of bacteria, you can definitively diagnose that, but the cultures, the testing takes a microbiology lab several days. You can't make organisms grow fast. You, that, you just can't do that. But what has changed is we now have what's called rapid diagnostic microbiology tests. Now, not all hospitals have these available. They're expensive. It always comes back to money. Every decision, I think, comes down to money. So we have these rapid diagnostic tests and we can rapidly identify within hours if it's viral or bacterial and actually what the organism is, which then allows me to direct the appropriate antibiotic therapy. So that's been a real breakthrough. And so, you know, what you described was exactly what my son went through. And back then, the duration of antibiotics was that 14 days. The neonatologist I'm working with, he's world-renowned, published the definitive study that says you no longer need to give that many days. We thought you did, but when you have what your son and my son or your daughter and my son experienced is what we call culture-negative sepsis. They never grew anything. You don't know why they spiked this temperature. In those patients, he showed in a very well done study published in the most prestigious international journal called the Lancet Infectious Diseases, you can treat for five days. Oh my. Okay, five days. Now, let me assure you, every neonatologist does not know about that study, nor do they do that. So, that is something we are actually doing a study right now. How do you change the behavior and get that new information into the hands of everybody? And so it takes time and, and, and you have to really hold their hand to go, I've done this. So he's older neonatologist, 30 plus years into his career. And, you know, he is such an authority figure, but others still question, you know, are you sure you can do this? I'm so afraid I've always given 14 days or 10 days. And, you know, you don't want to miss it in a baby, you know, but there's now study, you know, his study is just a landmark study. I work a lot globally. So I work in South Africa and it's actually a study we're implementing right now, trying to take his expertise and that study and take it into South Africa with their network of neonatologists and change that down there. It'll be unbelievable. So quite exciting. But yes, that's a big change from what you experienced and myself. So the crusade I'm on is I'm trying to teach people 
how, how important their gut is now and with mm-hmm. their kids and, and just start teaching early and using fermented foods and make sure you have an apple because the fiber, you know, I think it's interesting to tell a diabetes two person, you shouldn't eat fruit. It's like no healthy fiber going to my gut so the probiotics can live. I mean, yeah, just starve them out while you're at it. Create more inflammation, more insulin resistance. And we try to let people off the hook. Like this is not your fault. Our world has been toxic, toxified, overuse antibiotics has put you in this position. It's affecting everything from your anxiety to your inability to, to basically regulate your weight. So the, the concept of the question for you is, if I go in for, let's say, knee surgery, when I'm done, I have this rehab on my knee. If I go in for X, I have this rehab therapy. Do you think that anyone that's prescribed an antibiotic in, in this scenario should actually go on a gut healthy rehab, if you will, like prescribe six weeks to help them repopulate after? Because when you give an antibiotic, am I right? It kills off just about everything. You know, it tries to target, but ultimately, do you think that do you see in the future that we will be doing both? Hey, you're coming in for surgery. Let's do four weeks of gut healthy prep so you're less likely. And your post, let's do four weeks of gut healthy, you know, post therapy. I absolutely do. And we're seeing, you know, the really what I call cutting edge orthopedic surgeons that get it. You know, it's a way to market yourself separate from everybody else. I mean, there's tons of them out there. So why go to one versus the other? And it's interesting, the infectious disease physician that I work with, she was a dietitian before she became a physician. And she got tired of every physician just dismissing the value of nutrition in a hospitalized patient. And so she said, I, you know what? I'm done. No one listening to me. So I'm going to become a physician. So at age 40, she went to medical school <laughs> and she's amazing. And we do everything together. And when she went to medical school, she's like, oh my God, no wonder why physicians blow off nutrition. You, you get a one hour course and you're supposed to be like the expert at it. They learn nothing. Well, very little, I should say. And so it's not their area of expertise, but the microbiome, people are understanding that I find. So I worked with a surgeon, John Alverde's head of surgery at University of Chicago. That man is the total package. He's an outstanding surgeon. He understands infectious disease and his passion is microbiome. He has an entire microbiome lab. We connected over Twitter in just such a unique way. And so he invited me as a visiting professor and I spent the day in his microbiome lab watching. And he, like yourself, believes it's the connection to cancer, every inflammation disease. And, you know, how many people have rheumatoid arthritis, all these issues that if you could get their gut microbiome in check, they would be so much healthier. So I do believe the microbiome is an area that medical schools and pharmacy schools are going to start teaching. But again, you know, you need champions to push this agenda. And medicine is very traditional. I mean, it takes, you know, if you're sort of an out of the box thinker, which I am, you don't fit in. You know, people are always like, what are you doing now? Like, why are you on social media? That is absurd because you can reach a larger audience and it's amazing what you can learn from each other. And so, you know, medicine is very, very traditional, very slow to change. And sometimes that's really good. I mean, you don't want to, quote, experiment on patients and give them new therapy that you don't have a clue if it really works or not. And I think that's what COVID taught us. Oh, my God, it was terrifying at the beginning. Nobody knew how to do anything. So, you know, we threw antibiotics at everybody. And now we know that, I mean, we all knew at the beginning COVID's a virus, but antibiotics will never work for that. But we were so desperate in that fear of doing nothing just drove antibiotics for everybody. And, you know, I don't, we don't apologize for that. At the beginning of COVID, you know, you have a 30 year old dying in front of you, their chest X-ray had bilateral whiteout. Maybe they had a bacterial infection and I know I can treat that. This other thing called COVID, we don't know what we're doing. So COVID really taught us so many valuable lessons in medicine, but it forced us to think outside the box. Like, we had to analyze things literally in real time every day. And it taught us the value of working collaboratively together. No one person could manage a COVID patient. And you had to rely on other people to help provide the care. So as a pharmacist, we were reviewing the drug therapy for COVID 24-7. I mean, you couldn't keep up with it. You go to bed thinking, 
hydroxychloroquine, that's what we need to give. Then the next day, nope, dial that back. We don't give that now. You know, it's like it changed by the second and it still is. So I think we learned some really good things from that. So now that I'm in my 40s and I've had, I did have a lot of antibiotics as a child. I had strep throat a lot. And every time we'd go on vacation and we'd get the sniffles, like, pediatrician would give my mother a thing of antibiotics. So I, I relate to the justing yep. case approach, but now that I've learned that my daughter had only had to be on antibiotics for five days as opposed to 14 and I aged 20 years in the interim, what can people like myself do who had a history mm-hmm. and, you know, in addition to being a good steward, right. To ensure that I make better decisions for my kids and in myself, if I'm ever put in those situations, but what can we do to sort of repair what damage may have been done in, you know, specifically to gut health, because I feel like that's within our control, because if you look at food as medicine, it's right in front of us. So what are some things I can do for my daughter? What are some things that I can do for myself to sort of repair that damage? So repairing it, you know, that takes longer. When you give someone an antibiotic, whether necessary or unnecessary, your gut microbiome, we've done studies to show it's disrupted for up to a year. Now think about that, one full year. But, you know, many patients need antibiotics, so you just have to accept that. And I am one of the believers in probiotics to help repair that, but there's, you know, because they're unregulated in the United States. They're considered a food, not a drug. There's a lot of garbage on the market. And, you know, people, we, we actually did one study that showed how do people pick a probiotic? They pick the cheapest one on the shelf. It's a slippery slope, just like vitamins. You know, there are studies to show lots of supplements. They will do a chemical analysis and what they say is in the product actually is not in the product. So it's an unregulated market, unlike FDA approved drugs. And so you have to be very careful. And sometimes people will go, I'm taking this product. You know, what do you think about it? And I go, I can't give you an opinion because there's no data available on it. It might be really good and it might be totally worthless. I really can't give you an opinion if it if you feel like you're, whatever you're taking it for is getting better, you know, that's probably a good thing. So, you know, there's a lot of reluctance by healthcare providers to recommend things that you really don't have a lot of factual data on. So I'm always cautious in making sure patients understand that. So, you know, there's not a fix for everything, but I would say the most important thing is, you know, strep throat is a bacterial infection that needs an antibiotic. So the first step when you start feeling your throat hurt and you're getting, quote, your strep symptoms, there are rapid diagnostic tests that a doctor can do to say, yep, you've got strep or you don't. Now, this is where the skill of a person comes in. There are some rapid diagnostic tests that, just like we saw with COVID rapid diagnostic tests, they're not that good. They're the cheaper tests. And they're cheaper because they're not that good, meaning 40% of the time, they will have a false outcome, a report. So it'll say you're negative, but you're actually positive. So, you know, you got to be careful and a consumer is not going to know that, but the office or the doctor or, you know, the pharmacy that's providing the rapid test they should know, are we providing the best test to make this diagnosis or are we providing the cheapest test that 40% of the time isn't accurate? So there are differences there, but you can ask for a rapid test. And now you have a definitive, nope, you do not have strep and we use a really valid test. Therefore, I'm going to give you over-the-counter medicine have you gargle with salt water and you'll probably be fine. But if your symptoms escalate, then call me back. So it's kind of a watch and see approach. So there are ways to handle that, that, you know, the technology and microbiology has improved over time, that we are getting better at that. So our approach is, we tell people, if you could ask anyone in the street, you know, what's your diet like? They go, I eat pretty well. 
there's very few people that don't tell me that. And then I say, okay, yeah, but for whom, right? Because their information is, it's calories in, calories out. I know what to do. I just don't do it. Or they say things like, I have a sweet tooth or it's my genetics. And I say, well, that's interesting because 99% of your gene expression comes from your microbiome. So probably not. And then what we tell them is like, you have to figure out what foods work best for your body, reduce the inflammation. And the bad thing about bad bacteria is it grows fast, right? And that can overtake you. But it grows fast for good bacteria too. And so repopulating the lining can actually happen much quicker, much faster. And you get such a great benefit from. So in our organization, what we do is we help people meal plan around foods that are high fiber, good caloric density, water. We make them weigh in every day, take pictures of their lunch, their dinner, sleep, energy, moods. So they have all these data points to actually see the outcomes of what's happening because we can't see what's going on in the lining. And then we give some foods that you know, have some good probiotic abilities like kimchi, sauerkraut, uh, kombucha. And then we watch. And what ends up happening is in our minds is that they start to reduce the inflammation. The body starts to feel in a state of ease. It starts to target fat and turn it into energy. Their mood changes. Their anxiety comes down. Their cravings for bad food goes away because they're handling anxiety better. And then their cravings for good food increases because they're now getting a more diverse microbiome and microbiome is responsible for craving better food. We do sell a supplement that has a probiotic. And the only reason why I added that in a few years ago is because what you said is people were coming to me and saying, which one should I choose? And they'd go, they'd go get you know, taken. And so finally, I just was like, I'm just going to find a good probiotic, good reputable and give it to them basically a cost so they, mm -hmm. they can stop this. But I always tell them, without this food, this probiotic is going to have very little. It's like throwing seeds on a desert. Mm -hmm. You really need the other things to go with it because otherwise there's nothing for them to eat on. The inflammation will, will tear it up. Oh, and lastly, it was through elimination reintroduction, we helped them figure out what works best for them. For broccoli, it's one person. For cauliflower, it could be the person sure. cooked or not. But how critical is it in, in terms of our life? Like all eyes are on COVID right now because it's, you know, killing and destroying lives. What's happening now statistically and what will happen in the future statistically if we don't get a handle on it? Because as you said, people need to relate to the story. How critical is this for us? And, and how, many people, how many lives are being taken because of the antibiotic resistance? And how many will it continue to take if we don't do something? Yeah. So globally, 700,000 people a year die. It's projected to be 10 million by 2050 if we just stay course. So we are in a silent pandemic. I travel the world, obviously not right now, but I work in a lot of low middle income countries. I've been in hospitals across six continents to actually see. There are hospitals in many countries. There are no antibiotics available to treat the patient with. Nothing works. Nothing. There is nothing. You come in with that diagnosis, you die. And so their rates of resistance in these hospitals are far higher than ours. One hospital in South Africa that I was working in, in their neonatal unit, I watched multiple babies die during my few days there from antibiotic resistant infections that they acquired. And there's no effective antibiotics to treat them with. You just watch them die. It was heartbreaking. So that will be the United States. It will come. Everything's a plane right away. So we are in a silent pandemic. This has been going on. But it's a slow pandemic where COVID like hit us with like a fast moving train and we went from normal to shutdown and, you know, but antibiotic resistance is like that slow dripping water. So you just kind of tune it out after a while because it's been dripping for so long, you don't want to listen to it anymore. It's been occurring, but, you know, it's going to be a floodgate pretty soon. It's already there in countries and it's in our country. You know, I, I try to tell people it's higher in other countries for multiple reasons, but it is in our country. It's in your backyard. You might not know it yet, but I watch college students come to our clinic with their first urinary tract infection and have to tell them there's no oral antibiotic that will treat your urinary tract infection. We're gonna to have to put an IV pick line in you and you're gonna to have to come here every day for an IV antibiotic. And these young women look at me like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, how did I get this? And that's what happens. You know, you can be healthy, but you get exposed to 
an antibiotic resistant pathogen by eating meat that's contaminated. I mean, there's many ways you can have that enter your gut. And now you get a urinary tract infection and now you're infected with this super bug that's untreatable. So it's happening everywhere and we have a lot of work ahead of us to do it. So my goal is educating people, getting them informed to just always ask, is this antibiotic necessary? And the answer is often gonna be yes, but then ask. And so, you know, I call them the football scores, the seven, 10, 14 day durations. Are those still necessary? And we know in many infectious diseases, the answer is no. We have proven studies, but everybody doesn't know that yet. So as a consumer, as a patient, those are reasonable questions. You're not trying to be Dr. Internet and tell your doctor, you know, I got on Google and learned, you know, this. These are responsible questions that you should ask your doctor and it'll just make them pause to go, is this antibiotic you're prescribing for me necessary? And, you know, hopefully the answer is going to be yes. And this is why. And then you listen and then go, okay, so you're prescribing 10 days. Is 10 days necessary or would five be enough? These are discussions I think anyone could have. It's, it's not confrontational. You're not trying to tell a doctor how to be a doctor, but we all need to listen to each other. And I think if we're all in the discussion, it's better. There is one more thing I want to add. And this is, I think, what Dr. Bill has been advocating for for so many years is that one of the reasons that people are so quick to ask for an antibiotic, and maybe I'm wrong, but what I've seen from friends and family members is that they don't feel like you said, like they don't have the time or they just don't feel like feeling sick. Like they want to get out of that. They want to get out of bed. They don't want to have a sore throat. They don't want to have a headache. They don't want to feel tired. So then they automatically think this is the quick fix. But I think one of the ideas behind better is it's when you're on a regimen of constantly treating your body the right way, when you do get sick, when you get a virus, you are going to handle it better because you're just, your body is better equipped right. to, to fight whatever it is that's invading it. And so the whole just in case argument should be used towards diet and our lifestyle as opposed to antibiotics. Right. But our society doesn't like that. I mean, right now, the number one risk factor for COVID bad outcomes in hospitalized patients is obesity. Hmm. I mean, that's that's what we've learned one year into this. If you're obese, if you get COVID, your odds of a bad outcome are much higher. So, you know, it goes back to being responsible for your own health. And so many people you know, we're a medicine-driven society. I have diabetes. Well, I'm not going to change my diet. My doctor just gives me sugar pills. I mean, that's what they want. They don't, I mean, we see these patients in the hospital. Let me challenge you on that because this is what I've been trying to tell our patients is that potentially the harm that we've done to the people by the overuse of antibiotics in our food chain, we basically toxify them. When you're toxic and you have inflammation, you have insulin resistance, you gain weight. It's not a mind over matter thing anymore. Your cravings crave bad food. So oftentimes, you know, I'm the champion of the patient saying, listen, this isn't your fault. We keep telling them they just want a quick fix. Right. No, the doctors wanted a quick fix. That's why they gave us this stuff to begin with. The patient would rather not have these medications. I see them all the time, but they get so stuck. Now they're down the vicious cycle road. Right. Yeah, now they're like, okay, just give me the pills. They want to change their diet. They want to live healthy. But every time they do, They're told to count calories, flip tires in parking lots, right? Stress themselves out, you know, mentally, emotionally make them feel terrible, which only creates more cravings and stress. And their microbiome isn't even there to support their proper function. So no matter what they do, it's going to get harder and harder over time. If they actually just focused on nourishing their microbiome, all of this stuff gets easier over time and they'd be less predisposed to these, to COVID. I mean, we've set this up. We became ripe for this type of opportunity. So I think that it's twofold approach here is that the doctors and all of us as a movement have to wake up and say, we were designed to thrive given the right environment. If I plant a tomato plant and it doesn't grow in two weeks, I don't start yelling at the tomato plant to grow. We don't let ourselves off the hook. We keep yelling at each other. Well, the doctors don't know what they do. The patients won't listen. And the experts, there's a quarter of a million books written on diet and nutrition. They can't all be right. and They can't all be wrong. They're just not be right for you. So 
right? Taking matters into your own hand is really just about educating and empower you, empower you to understand, like you just said, we can't just take these antibiotics anymore. That is, unfortunately, the damage has been done. It's been done in more ways than just having bacteria that don't respond to antibiotics anymore. It's also causing this pandemic of anxiety, mental health issues. Uh, our immune systems are, are so uh, depressed. And as you just mentioned, then it causes weight gain. That's the outcome symptom. And that symptom is the one that you know, predisposes you. Dr. Wishmeyer with Duke was saying, someone gets into his hospital, within 24 hours, the bad bacteria literally takes over the microbiome. It signals all of its bad friends and takes over. And so if you go in there already depressed microbiome, your chances are lower. Then you get in the inflammation and the weight gain. We have to educate that this can be solved, but it doesn't have to be solved in a hard way. Be solved in a way of just changing what's going into our bodies, what type we're putting on our skin. And when we do get sick, when we do need those antibiotics, they will actually do something. Uh, right. I mean, that's the problem we're in now. We are literally running out of effective antibiotics. And it, it goes back to, you know, educating why are we doing this and creating that behavior change. I'm doing an initiative right now, dental antibiotic stewardship. So there's this longstanding issue with orthopedic surgeons. When they put a hip or knee in, they tell patients, Every time you go for a dental procedure, you need antibiotic prophylaxis. And then the dentist gets that patient in their office and the American Dental Association said, no, that's not evidence-based. It's not correct. And there's harm in giving people antibiotics. And so the ADA says, no, that's not right. And the two, the patient is the one stuck in the middle getting different conflicting advice. So we actually brought them together in one room. This was before COVID and had a dialogue, a community, what I call a grassroots effort. Let's talk to each other and let me understand why you do what you do. And let me understand why you do what you do. And I'm going to tell you as an infectious disease expert, what I think is the best approach. So it was all about risk versus benefit. So an orthopedic surgeon doesn't want that hip or knee replaced because Unlike a wound infection where you get source control, you can't just take out the implant and go put a new one if it gets infected. It's catastrophic to the patient. So even though the risk is less than 1%, they will give those patients antibiotics for life. And they still recommend that to this day. Right. And, you know, we're teaching them there's a consequence. Ask a patient who's developed C. diff from an, a single dose of an antibiotic. And they will tell you how life-altering that is to have their gut microbiome disrupted. You can't work when you have C. diff. You have explosive diarrhea multiple times a day. I mean, it might be like most people go, oh, they get diarrhea. I'm sorry. If you work for a living, you can't work when you have C. diff. If you're a healthcare provider, you can't go into a hospital if you're C. diff positive. I mean, there's so many things I could discuss about that. But there's all a relationship, as you said, by what you put in your body, we need to be more responsible and we can't just keep blaming each other. So that's where one health, you know, the farmers were blaming the doctors. Well, you're the ones that prescribe all the antibiotics and doctors blame the farmers if you'd stop giving them to animals. And now we're at the same table. That's what a one health committee does is you, let me understand. I'm not a farmer. Why do you give them? It doesn't even make sense to me. They're not infected. And you know, I learned so much. You can't isolate one cow. So if one cow gets an infection, you got to treat your whole herd. And now I start understanding. And of course, there's economic ramifications. So the rationale is different in each discipline. But until they hear from me, what you're doing on farming is impacting patients. And that could be you or it could be your parents or your grandchildren one day that's sitting in my hospital with an untreatable infection because we all want to try to blame each other. And that doesn't, it has not worked and it will not work. So Absolutely. if we listen and learn, we will see there's value in all aspects of this. Be careful what you put in your body. It definitely makes a difference. And you have to be responsible for your own health. And I think our discussion today has given our audience some good ideas on how they can be more responsible for their own health. And that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, said like, it's always about the money, right? The decisions are made about oh, yeah. the money. You'll be happy to know, like, the way we're covered by health plans is value-based care. So we actually only get paid for hitting milestones, like five, seven, 10% drop in A1C. Perfect. And 
because I knew that I would not have the fanfare enough to get all the studies. It would take us years to prove that. How about you just give them to us at our expense? We'll take them through this food is medicine approach and watch what happens. And then we started right. tra- charting it. And the reason why I bring up the point is Blue Shield of California now is starting to give us, not only pay us to work with the clients, but they're giving the clients dollars towards healthy food service. So we have a, a meal delivery service. They're actually piloting this. And what we found is astonishing because people don't think they can afford to eat healthy and gut healthy. Right. Right? And so we get them started on this pathway. And they're like, actually, I can do this. And oh, wow, my cholesterol dropped. I've come off this medication, that medication, my pain, my fibromyalgia is going away. So I do think in medicine and the time is perfect for us in the healthcare, we realize our costs are out of control. We're losing lives because we don't have the, the medicines being overused. That, that new dollar, which may have been only in the pharma, like the prescription pharma was the dollar, the new dollar is how can you prevent these things and how you save lives and save costs at the same time. So I think we're in a beautiful era of this healthcare system that's going to this value-based consumerization of healthcare driven more community. And the work you're doing is outstanding. We are committed here at Better Health to promote and keep talking about this on our Tuesday night calls. We're gonna put education into our pathway around this. We'll make your TEDx talk actually one of the you know, great pieces of education that we send to them. Thank you so much, continue the work and we'll do our part here to make this part of the Better Health Movement. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the Better Podcast brought to you by BetterHealth.com. For episodes, be sure to subscribe to this feed on the podcast app you're using right now. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Bill Farrow, and we'll see you again on the Better Podcast. Hey there, listeners. Did you know we not only have an award-winning podcast, but we have an amazing blog to go with it? If you go over to BETRHealth.com and click on the blog button, you'll have access to recipes, member stories, food is medicine tips, and so much more. That's BETRHealth.com slash blog.